Hey everybody, this is Greg Penix, and you're listening to issue number 17 of the Fantasy Comic Book Editor League. Um, once again, I forgot to say something I was supposed to last episode, so I uh, kind of breezed through three years uh, last episode. A new record for me. Covered three years in our, you know, Matt made up history of an imaginary comic book company covered 66 through 68 i was all proud of myself got all the details except i realized at the end of the episode i forgot to mention the amazing tales annual for 1968 there's a lot to cover so i understand why but the annual for that year is crime and punishment by Will Eisner, continuing his twofer from the year before when he did Cyrano de Bergerac as the annual. So I just figure some meaty story for Will Eisner to spread his wings on. I'm sure around this time he was already thinking about, you know, he, he always kind of thought that comics aren't necessarily for children. Um, he was always trying to expand that parameter. And of course, as we've seen since the mid-70s, He's been, he did a lot of graphic novels, definitely not for kids, trying to make comic books uh, a more literary thing. I don't know how well he succeeded. I like some of them. It's not the best stuff you've ever read, especially like in this new age of graphic novels where these guys are making amazing shit every week. But I think it would be a pretty damn nice comic. Will Eisner, um, late 60s, he still can draw the shit out of a page uh later on as graphic novels he got a more loose line uh you know it was more of like a visual shorthand to tell the story but um i think that would be a pretty damn good comic and uh so that's what i forgot to tell you last time sorry about that so let's get to 1969 this is a title i'm very excited about uh one of the few titles that uh Basically, uh, isn't just a ripoff of something else. It's this uh, series I developed, uh, this, these characters I developed years ago. When I was thinking about, I think I was reading Turok. And just thinking about how Turok is just this perfect thing like for like little kid comic book readers. Like, hey, he's a Native American who fights dinosaurs. Like, what kid in the 50s, 60s wouldn't be like, holy shit. Take all of my dimes, please. So for some reason, I was thinking of along those lines. And I came up with the idea of a group of characters who hang out in the Old West. And I just think, even if it was a pretty goofy, dumb comic, I think kids would fucking love this. Just for the covers, just the, that concept. And so what it is, is this group called The Strangers... And because, you know, you know, who was that stranger? And they're they're stranger than most strangers because they're a pretty strange group. So it's a cowboy, an Indian, a Zulu warrior, and a samurai in the Old West getting into various crazy adventures. And uh, I just think of visually, I mean, what kid wouldn't have been like, holy shit, that's so cool, you know. It's, I want to read that comic even as an old man. But um, 
But I came up with lots of ideas for it. In fact, uh, later on, I turned this into a mini rock opera. Uh, I was in a punk band named the Cuntifiers, and I had run out of things to sing about. I had, Basically, for 15 years, I've been writing lyrics for two different bands. And it was just, uh, I had nothing left to write about. So I was like saying, hey, I could just write stories from my uh, idea file. You know, like uh, story songs. I've always loved story songs. So I basically turned The Strangers into like a six-song song cycle. Maybe seven? I can't remember now. Each character got his own song. But uh, the thing I really liked about The Strangers is not just that. The kind of adolescent uh, child fascination with like those four characters. But their, their leader... Is a interesting character. She's a she's an ex slave, a runaway slave from the South. During the Civil War, she or right before it, she escapes to the North, and by happenstance, basically becomes uh, Ulysses S. Grant's like uh, you know his laundry girl. You know when he was out on campaigns, she's like thirteen. And, uh, you know, she cooks his meals, washes his clothes. She's basically like his little maid. So what happens is, if you know anything about U.S. Grant, apparently he was a huge drunk who failed at everything he ever did, all of his business ventures. He had a rich wife who bankrolled him. He always fucked up. He was a total fuck up. And yet, if you follow the history of the Civil War, you know, he basically won the war for us. That's the... You know, U.S. Grant, great hero of the Civil War. So when I was watching that Ken Burns documentary, I was like, how did this guy go from a complete, a complete failure, loser? And all of a sudden, Civil War comes, and he's like brilliant tactician and doing all the right moves. So this is my theory. This young girl, she was like a savant tactician, military tactician. You know, she didn't get much education and she grew up a slave. But she could, when she was uh, in his tent, Ulysses S. Grant's tent, when he'd pass out from too much booze, she could look at his battle maps and just instinctively know where to move the little pieces on the the thing when they're playing in battles. So we'd wake up the next morning and be like, holy shit, that's brilliant. And he kind of knew, you know, he, of course, was like, what did you do? He's, she was just like, yeah, this just made more sense. I think you'll win the battle if you do this. So that's how he won all those battles in the Civil War is because of her. So at the end of the war, you know, he can't give her a medal. Nobody would believe him. And she's black. And she's a young girl. She's like a young teenager. But she's brilliant. She doesn't act like a teenager. She's got this amazing brain. Very adult for her age. So he basically, like, gives her the sword that uh, when the South surrendered. Uh, I, off the top of my head, I can't remember the name of that general. Maybe it was uh, Lee, Robert E. Lee's sword that he gave to Grant when he surrendered. He gives it to her because he's like, you deserve this. Uh, I wish I could give you something more. Because I know it's kind of weird, but they also kind of have this sexual relationship, which is weird because she's like 14 or something. Um, maybe by the end of the war, she's like 16, 17. But, you know, who 
crazier things have happened. Of course, she's just like, she rides off. She's got Robert E. Lee's sword. And from there, she just travels around the Old West collecting these four characters, the cowboy, the Indian, the Zulu, and the samurai. And they all have interesting stories. I guess I shouldn't go into it here because, um, uh, whatever. It's, uh, it's really about amazing comics. Yeah, maybe I will. So I'll try to be quick. So the cowboy is a Russian Jew who escaped the pogroms in Russia and came to America. His father was a rabbi. And uh, he he's playing poker on the ship over here, you know, the sailing from Russia. And he wins a gun. The guy doesn't have any more money left. He's like, I'll give you this pistol. And this guy takes to that pistol like a motherfucker. And uh, so... As soon as he gets off the boat in San Francisco, some, you know, anti-Semitic cut is just like, says something like racist or anti-Semitic to him. He just fucking shoots him in the, right between the eyes. And so, uh, from then on, he basically doesn't take any shit. He's really good with a gun. So, back then, people didn't like the Jews, even less than they do now. Everyone hated the Jews. So a lot of people come after him and give him shit. He just mows him down. And uh, instead of like a sheriff's badge on his chest, he's got a Star of David. And he never kills on the Sabbath, though. So you're lucky if he sees you on the Sabbath, he's pissed at you. I mean, he'll kill you the next day. But uh, if it's the Sabbath, he will not kill you. Because he still has a little, uh, respects his father still deep down. His his, rap, his rabbinical ways. So that's basically that guy, the the Indian guy. He's a he's an Apache, and uh, he's a he's this goofy guy. He's the comic relief of the group. He's always like playing practical jokes and shit, and uh, but his practical jokes are pretty deadly. Like, uh, you know, he'll. Uh, I can't think off the top of my head what he does, but he does some gnarly shit. But it's always kind of funny. And then the samurai is a was actually a Chinese samurai. That's there is quite a tale. So he's one of the coolies who comes over to work on the railroad. Kind of gets bamboozled and tricked into coming to work on the railroads. Basically, be like almost a slave. Those guys were not treated well. But. Uh, he was he was actually a calligrapher, and so he had nothing to write on those nights in the the railway camps. So he'd go out to the desert dunes where they're making the, because they're building the railroad all through the desert, in this in the near Tombstone, Arizona, and he would like use a a broom or something to do giant calligraphy. And if you know anything about samurais, they all study calligraphy. That was a part of their practice because that was like sword play. If you could control a pen on a piece of paper with such deafness and grace, it's almost like a, a miniature version of like being able to use a samurai sword deftly and with grace. So unknowingly, he becomes this really good... He has got all the foundations for being a good samurai. There's a Japanese blacksmith in the camp. He doesn't like Chinese people. 
But he recognizes that this guy's got the soul of a samurai. And he trains him. This guy was like disgraced in Japan. He was a great samurai. Also a great swordsmith. But, um, you know, he did something. He had to leave Japan. And now he's just working. He's the cook in a coolie camp on the railroad. And uh, teaches him. And then the... This kid, you know, basically gets good enough where he, like, kills a bunch of the railway guys fucking with him and escapes. And he doesn't have to work on the railroad anymore. And then finally we got the Zulu. And the Zulu, he's a kind of like some big wig in his tribe. I don't know, a prince, maybe, if you will. And, uh, but he gets captured as a slave. He's a very proud guy, so... Basically, right off the coast of New York City, they were going to stop for supplies on the way to the south. He jumps ships and swim, jumps ship and swims to shore, and then he, uh, you know, basically just uh, lives underground. But he actually lives in Central Park because you know it's nat- natural. It's more like his homeland. It's like Africa, and he teams up with all these hobos in the park, all these uh, these bums. And he realizes that uh, he's one of those first people who realizes that information is really powerful and valuable. And he knows that bums, hobo-type people, ever, nobody even sees them. They're invisible to most people. So people let down their guard. If two mobsters are talking you know, in an alley and they see some hobo passed out, they're not going to be like, oh, keep it down, that guy might hear us. They're just like, oh, whatever, that drunken piece of shit, who cares? So these guys basically become this huge gang even though they're just a bunch of hobos just using information and they all bring it back to uh, the Zulu who sits in a lives in a cave in the Central Park where he runs his empire of course all the other gang mobsters after a while get fed up with this and they all unite to run his ass out of town so he runs to the Old West so that's how those guys all end up in the Old West and they all hook up somehow do some happenstance. And then the general, that uh, young woman, the the savant military tactician, maybe she finds them all and says, hey, guys, we're going to be mercenaries. You're going to work for me. You're going to do what I tell you because I'm fucking smart. And uh, so that's The Strangers. Sorry to get so long. I haven't talked about one title this much in a while. Who's going to draw The Strangers, though? That's important. And... Of course, it's going to be Russ Heath. Russ Heath, not only one of the kings of war comics, but he did a damn good Western whenever he did. And uh, didn't do enough. But then again, he was so good at war comics. It was probably the best use of his time. But, oh, yeah, this is going to be nice. Russ Heath, Drawn the Strangers, all these crazy adventures. Uh, I kind of uh, subtitle it uh, a peak. Uh, the men's sorry a people's history of the men's adventure novel because these guys would be fighting all the bastards that weren't like you know not guys in black hats they'd be fighting the Pinkertons and the railroad trusts and all these rich cunts who fucked with everyone and the KKK so they're basically going to be like the the action hero who's going to like stick it to the man back in the old west so that's the new title for 1969. I'm very excited about it. I think it's it's going to have a long life. 
There's a lot of stories they could tell with those four colorful characters and their leader, the general. That could be pretty damn fun. So, moving on. There's going to be some more switcheroos going on in 1969. And uh, lots of artist switcheroos here. Let's see if I can keep this all straight. So, because Russ Heath has now joined the Strangers, he will no longer be drawing Tor, our caveman character. And who are we going to get to draw that? Alfredo Alcala, who's been drawing various features for us. I think that would be perfect. I mean, he's good at drawing that kind of stuff. It's just like, you know, he did great barbarian stuff. and I just think perfect fit. Very illustrative. He'd draw like all the lines in every rock and volcano and saber-toothed tiger. So yeah, Alfredo Caladron tour. That's going to be a good looking comic. And uh, Alfredo Cala has been working in our, our Amazing Tales doing a bunch of series, but he won't be any longer. So, uh, and then we got uh, Night Hunter, our horror comic, is going to be taken over by Frank Thorne. And uh, that'll be nice. Frank Thorne, always known for drawing everything except superheroes. And uh, he could draw all kinds of stuff. And he just had this great style. I think he'd do a damn good Night Hunter. And uh, I like that idea. So, Gene Colan's been drawing Night Hunter for the past five years for us. So he's got to go somewhere. He's going to take over Dr. Warlock. Once again, I'm just aping our reality. Dr. Warlock is our Dr. Strange. Gene Colan uh, had a huge run on Dr. Strange. It seemed like throughout the 70s, he was just drew like hundreds of issues of that. Every time I was a kid, every now and then I'd pick up Doctor Strange. Oh, yeah, Gene Colan still hacking away at that. I'm sorry, not hacking away. Drawing very good in his great inimitable style. So now, uh, Doctor Warlock, all this time, well, for five years, that's been drawn by Bill Everett. And basically around this time, I guess Bill Everett's saying goodbye to the Amazing Comics Universe. I think uh, in our world, he wasn't uh, much long for the world. I don't know how long he lived, but he pretty much dropped out late 60s, early 70s. Um, Apparently, he was a really bad drunk, um, kind of a sad guy, uh, really uh, had a problem with alcohol, and I imagine he wasn't very happy. So Bill Everett's whatever. And to be honest, you know, at that age, his style would have just kept degenerating. Sorry, not to sound ageist, but, you know, that's how comic artists usually are. Obviously exceptions. But most of those guys, at a certain point, it's like law of diminishing returns. I mean, Jack Kirby, even Steve Ditko, their last, like, 10 years of their life, their production was kind of sad, actually. So, another switcheroo. We got the Crimson Knight will now be drawn by Joe Kubert. And I think that would be a great fit. Joe Kubert drawing Tales of Knights and stuff. I mean, Joe Kubert's good at everything. Everything, anything that's not a superhero. Him and Frank Thorne are kind of the same. Just let him go at anything from the past. Westerns, war, Tales of Knights, horror shit. Anything that's kind of interesting like that. So I think the Crimson Knight's going to be really Great under Joe Kubert. 
So, uh, Crimson Knight has been drawn by Frank Thor this whole time. But I have to address that Joe Kubert, I'm not going to force him to draw two comics a month. But uh, he'll be leaving Warhawk, our war comic, our generic war hero. Who's going to take that over? Oh, this is going to be nice. John Severin. John Severin, another guy. So good at westerns. But man, he did a lot of great war comics. Especially in the 70s. For DC. Well, of course, obviously. For EC comics in the 50s. But even in the 70s, he just cranked out some beautiful shit. And his stuff was always beautiful. But, um, so yeah, getting John Severin to draw a war comic for a few years is going to be fucking great. And I'm very excited. So, uh, around this time, Alex Toth probably won't be doing any monthly titles. He's been drawing Ms. 45 since 64 for us. I figure, like, 69, Alex Toth is really just hitting his peak. He is just really mixing up a style, getting really kind of crazy. And uh, so basically, I just want him to be writing all these little short stories for Amazing Tales and, uh, you know, cool filling issues when he feels like it. But um, I don't want to tie him down with some, you know, the same character every month. So... Who's going to take over Miss 45? Al Williamson. This, at first I was like, ah, that's kind of a weird fit. But then I'm like, no, of course not. Williamson drew uh, Secret Agent Corrigan or whatever, that comic, for years. Just like his idol, Alex Raymond. Alex Raymond was really good at science fiction. But then he could also draw, you know, shit like that. You know, like kind of uh, detectives and... uh, Adventure heroes, you know, more uh, not wearing crazy outfits or sci-fi. And Al Williamson's a great illustrator. I think that would be great. So, um, that's Ms. 45. And then we have one more switcheroo. Well, because Al Williamson, who uh, started Clawfang the Barbarian a few years ago, that's going to need a new artist 1969. Can you guess who's going to take over a Barbarian comic? Barry Smith. Now known as Barry Windsor Smith. But back then he was just plain old Barry Smith. So right about the time when he's going to take over Conan the Barbarian for Marvel Comics in our world. Nah, they don't get him. We've got our nose out, our ears to the ground. We keep reaching for the stars. And... We're going to get Barry Smith to draw our claw thing. And he'll probably stick around longer. Because we're going to be paying him really good. He's going to get all these great reprint rates. Because people in like other countries will be reprinting it. And he'll actually see a piece of that. Because his work is so good. So it all pays off in the end. So that's the artist switcheroos for this one. And... uh that's, I think I covered everything for at least January 1969. Uh, I do want to check in on Amazing Tales, since I always forget to do this shit. Uh, 1969, basically we still got uh, Sinbad by Rudy Nebra's Dracula, Dracula by Vincente Alcazar, A Thousand and One Nights by Alex Nino. 
Alan Quartermain by Alcala is no longer going. I think that'll be the end of Alan Quartermain. I, I imagine Norse Myths by Kirby's kind of winding down too. I don't even know how many Norse Myths survived. So uh, they weren't like the Greeks. They didn't write down much, those Vikings. And uh, so there's probably not as many existing myths. But basically, I wanted to say too, I'm a... I think I'm not going to tell you all the details in Amazing Tales from now on. Basically, I've run out of ideas. Um, a lot of these series will keep going for a few years. I'm just going to basically say use your imagination. Uh, you know, there's going to be great artists. Keep joining our fold. Uh, there's great works of literature to adapt, and they will be doing that. I just don't have the details, and I don't want to think of them. But maybe at a certain point in a few years, it'll just be like, yeah, we're just going to have like three issues adapted in one book. So it'll almost be like a, a version of the annuals. But, or maybe it'll just be a lot of short stories, you know, like, yeah, we're going to adapt a Edgar Allan Poe story and a, you know, an O. Henry story. So whatever it is, it's going to be basically a, a hodgepodge of different formats, different artists, but all the artists will be great. And they'll be adapting great stories. So it'll still be a great comic. You just won't hear about it from me. So I guess uh, in summer of 1969, the summer of 69, uh, we have an Amazing Tales annual. And this one's going to be nice. So we got All's Quiet on the Western Front. The famous anti-war tale about World War One. And, of course, Joe Kubert's going to draw that. So Joe Kubert's going to draw this great comic of trench warfare and man's inhumanity to man and make war no more, as he used to say. So that's going to be damn good. That's the Amazing Tales annual. Um, some things I wanted to address before we leave the 60s, because next episode we're getting into 1970. It's going to get groovy on us. But um, <clears throat> I definitely want to say at some point in the 60s, Amazing Comics would start their book publishing. And we would basically, you know, looking at Europe, the European model, we would start putting out graphic novels and just nice books of reprinting albums, if you will, uh, of all of our classic comics. And um, that'll be nice. And also, like things like Little Nemo, giant coffee table books of Prince Valiant, all the classic comic strips. It would basically be like a history of comic book art. We'd have it all. And uh, just publishing a lot of books. It's like I said, we have our own printing plant. I don't know if most magazine guys could actually print books as well. But, you know, we've been doing good for 29 years. Successful. We'll expand our printing plant and get the machine so we can get, like, book publishing going and binding and all that. So I'm excited about just having this aspect of it. Because that was a sad thing about comics until relatively recently in our the history. Is that comics would just be so ephemeral. Um... They might reprint them here and there in various little titles. 
But just getting to read like a huge collection of a comic, it was really fucking rare. Until like now, of course, you know, kids today are very spoiled. I envy them. But when I was a kid, you would just read about comics forever. And fanzines, there was no way to read them unless you were really rich and you could buy the back issues at a comic convention or something. So that'll be a great thing. And uh, I think it'll build up the audience too. Because people will be like, holy shit, I never read these. I'm going to read the comic now. And, uh, yeah, I guess that covers the 60s. I did have a weird thought, though. Um, just, uh, you know, our uh, our kid comic, Fun Weekly. I was uh, just thinking about how, I years ago, I went to a museum that was showing R. Crumb, uh, a lot of his artwork. And they actually had some of his teenage artwork when him and his brother would draw comics. But this was all Robert Solo. I think it was a little later. But it was before he, like, you know, was really, like, drawing undergrounds. Because it's on lined paper. They had, This museum had a great uh, exhibit where it was literally, they just had all these pieces of lined paper from his notebooks. Just all on the wall behind glass case. So nobody could fuck with it. So you could read the whole comic. And it's a funny animal comic. It's Fritz the Cat type stuff. And it's kind of, it's clean. It really is just a fun, funny animal comic. There's some satire and stuff, but there's nothing like rated X. And it was amazing to me. Our crumb is so great. But he was a really good funny animal artist. I mean, straight. He If things went differently, if he wasn't such a weirdo... He might have become America's most beloved, you know, funny animal kids artist for Dell Comics or something. Maybe he would have taken over Uncle Scrooge. But I was just thinking how weird that would be in this universe where, yeah, maybe we we get some uh, cute little comics from our crumb in Fun Weekly. And he would just draw these funny animal comics for kids. And... Uh, I would want him not to do what he did because what he did in our universe was incredible. So, uh, but I just think that would be kind of funny, all these weird little things that could pop up in our comics because we're, we care about comics and uh, we have better taste than those other fucking barbarians out there in the comic book world. So, uh, yeah, sorry, this one went a little long. I'm rambling a lot. But... If you do want to leave a comment, 503-880-4545, please send me a comment or your your fantasies about comic books. Okay, I guess that's it. I think I've covered everything. Have a great night. I love you all.